the the activity that goes on zero day and zero day options, it's very distinct from the typical volumes that we see in longer dated options, right? So for example, you know, institutional investors coming to a hedge, you know, like we, we mentioned, right? Recession risk or, you know, they want to put on a hedge going to year end. That hedging flow, right? That's not going to be replaced by zero day options, right? It's true that the VIX does not reflect the activity that's going on in these zero day options. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another edition of IBKR Podcasts. I'm your host today, Steve Sosnick, Chief Strategist here at Interactive Brokers, and I'm very pleased to... uh, Acknowledge my guest today, Mandy Zhu, Vice President and Head of Derivatives Market Intelligence at the SIBO. Um, and obviously, there's a lot we can learn from the people at the SIBO. They do a great job in terms of, of market stats. Mandy, why don't you take um, a few few minutes and introduce yourself to the audience, please? Sure. Thanks, Steve. Uh, and I'm very happy to to be here. So I recently joined SIBO after 13 years on the sell side, where I was, you know, head of equity derivative strategy at Credit Suisse. Um, and what I'll be doing at SIBO uh, is uh, producing a lot of client-facing content and market commentary around SIBO's leading suite of volatility products, including obviously the VIX, S&P options, um, et cetera. That, that's wonderful. Tell me how you ended up in the strategist role at Credit Suisse before you started at SIBO? Sure. So I actually interned at Credit Suisse uh, straight out of college. Well, actually, while in college and during my rotation internship, I rotated on the equity derivatives desk and I loved it. I loved the fact that it was a little bit more quantitative. Um, and then when I joined the desk, there was an opening on the strategy uh, team. Um, and I like that, you know, it was a combination of quantitative and qualitative, right? So there's a lot of data analysis, um, looking at, you know, option tweaks, what's going on, you know, with with the data in the market, but also a big component of obviously is kind of distilling all of that data into actionable market themes and trade ideas for clients. So, um, you know, to me that that strategy role was kind of the perfect combination of what I like to do, which is kind of dig into the data, but also you know, using the data to tell a story about what is happening in the market. Wonderful. Well, you were actually at this game longer than I have because I came to it after 25 plus years as a market maker and sort of blundered into the strategy role. So I, I think we'll have a, I, I think it'll be fun to talk to someone who, who approaches the same topics with a uh, different perspective. Let's dive right in. We can't have a discussion about volatility, especially one involving the SIBO, you know, without asking, what do you see going on with VIX? Most people came into the to 2023 expecting higher market volatility, but what we've gotten instead is a VIX that fell steadily for much of the year, hitting a three-year low of just over a 12 handle in June. What do you see as the main drivers of this? And where do you think most people uh, frankly, got it wrong. To your point, most people came into this year very much expecting, I think, a repeat of last year, right, which is, you know, elevated levels of volatility on the back of macro uncertainty. And to me, the move in the VIX this year is actually really very much fundamentally driven. It's a reflection of the fact that the macro environment has changed, right? So we came to this year expecting, you know, sticky inflation, potential hard landing, recession. And instead, what we have gotten is inflation that is has fallen very, very rapidly, right? 
from a high of, I think, almost 10% last year to a low of 3% now. Sure, it's not at, you know, the Fed's 2% target yet, but we're, you know, we're well on our way there. And at the same time, you know, unemployment remains at historic lows, right? So we are very much in this Goldilocks situation. And that's why you're seeing volatility decline, not just for stocks, not just for equities, uh, but across asset classes, right? So, you know, not just the VIX that's fallen to near one-year lows, but we're also seeing credit volatility, rates volatility, FX volatility, oil, commodities, across every single asset class, volatility has fallen substantially. So that's why I think most, if not all of the move is very much fundamentally driven. Now, in addition to that, though, when we're talking about equity volatility and particularly the VIX, one thing to highlight is the role that correlation and dispersion kind of play in, in into um, you know the level of the VIX. So keep in mind, that the VIX is a measure of S&P 500 index volatility, right? So the S&P 500 index, it's a function of obviously not just the, the, the volatility of the individual stocks, but also the correlation of those stocks. And the way that I explain it is that, you know, if you take it to the extreme of, you know, simplify it to an index of just two stocks, equal weighted, you know, one stock goes up 20, 20% in a day, another stock goes down 20% in a day at the index level, right? That's unchanged. So high stock volatility, but very low index volatility in an environment of extreme dispersion or low correlation. And that's what we've seen this year. So S&P correlation went from levels, you know, ranging 40 to 50 last year to a low of 8% earlier this year. And to put that in context, that's pretty much at or near a historic low. The last time we saw index correlation levels at that, you know, at that extreme was in 2017, which was a record low vol year for the VIX when the VIX was at nine, right? So the move in correlation, the decline in correlation uh, of the stocks in the S&P 500, I think is a, another major contributor to why the VIX has been so low. And, and the macro reason for that, obviously, is this you know decline in recession risk. So that allows investors to move away from looking at the macro to now picking, you know, to, to more stock fundamentals and, and stock picking. Two follow-ups to that. First of all, how can our listeners follow correlation and dispersion? The concept is that you described is rooted in covariance and, 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 and situations of that nature. And when we had a situation where essentially seven stocks were going up and 493 were, were treading water, that, that fits into it. But um, the, the numbers you threw out, where can, where can our listeners access that, those type of statistics? Great question. So historically, traditionally, correlation dispersion have been, you know, I would say fairly esoteric topics or esoteric, um, you know, subjects. But at SIBO, actually, we tried to make it more transparent and easier to follow and track for the end user. So we do actually have a number of correlation indices, um, you know, one month, three months, six months, one year. So depending on the tenor that you're looking at, imply correlation um, indices um, for the S&P. So that is so the numbers I was referencing earlier. That's based on those indices. And then just to kind of as a heads up, we're also going to be launching a dispersion index next month. So more to come on that. But, you know, we're definitely trying to make these subjects and these topics more transparent and easier to access and easier to follow for investors. I love when I blunder into new product announcements uh, from our, from our from, <laughs> You, you from teed our it up guests. perfectly for me, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but, you know, of course, one thing to keep in mind is, you know, you talked about the record lows in, in late 2017. Those of us who've been in the business for a while remember how it how it, that came to an end in 2018. So at some level, do you feel the complaint, you know, do you feel that complacency becomes extreme? We're, we're off the lows of, of VIX now, you know, just so people understand it. We're taping this in the afternoon of um, Wednesday, August, what's today, the 9th? Wednesday, August 9th, um, when I came into the room, VIX was about 16 um, off its lows of, you know, 12 and change. Do you think that investors are getting a little complacent, especially when we head into a seasonal time? And especially because some of the risks that were perceived earlier in the year, while you acknowledge that they've dissipated, they've not evaporated. So what's your feeling on on investor complacency versus, well, let's just put a fear and greed. So let me address it in, 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 in two ways. So first, with regard to longer-term risks, such as risk of recession, policy risk, um, policy mistake, you know, from the Fed, those risks, like you have pointed out, you know, they've dissipated but not evaporated. However, VIX is not the index to be looking at for measures of these longer-term risks, right? So just keep in mind that VIX, by design, it's a measure of one-month implied volatility for the S&P. So in layman's terms, you know, how much the S&P uh, 500 index is expected to move in the next 30 days. That's it, right? So you very much could have an environment like now where the VIX is low, but still you have these uh, elevated or potentially elevated longer-term risks. Um, to really kind of get a sense of, you know, is the options market, is the derivatives market appropriately pricing in these longer-term risks? You have to look at the entire volatility curve. So in this instance, you know, looking at longer-dated implied volatility uh, for the S&P. So for example, if we look at one-year options on the S&P, I think that would give you a better sense or better gauge of how markets are pricing in, you know, longer term risks like recession, etc. So, you know, if we look in the S&P curve right now, it is true, though, longer dated, you know, vols have come in actually pretty significantly over the past two months. So one year, S&P one year at the money implied volatility, you know, went from 18 and a half at the beginning of June um, to as low as 15 and a half, right, a decline of three points in the span of a few weeks. That's pretty notable. Um, and more importantly, you know, the the current level, it's right around the long-term average. So the at least, you know, longer dated implied vols in, in, in S&P, not really trading at, you know, elevated levels currently. So I do think that is a reflection of the fact that at least in the options market, you know, people do see recession fears as, as easing. And I think, you know, it's no coincidence it's happening at the same time as, you know, major banks are reversing their recession calls as, as we have continued to get, you know, good economic data. What kind of what tenor are you looking at when you're trying to make an assessment of risk? It really, really, really matters. And the second, and then I think even more crucial point is that a lot of times people think low VIX means that it's complacent, high VIX means it's, you know, there, there's a lot of fear in the market. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think you can have, you know, VIX or in, that is low, but actually pricing in a lot of fear, as well as, you know, VIX that is trading high, but not actually a price pricing in appropriate amounts of, of a risk. So for example, uh, last year, VIX was elevated, right? But it was not trading rich. This year, similar, I would say, to what we saw in 2017, if you look at where the VIX is trading versus where the S&P is realizing in terms of realized volatility, that spread or that difference, you know, people often call that the volatility risk premium. It's a function of how much risk aversion is being priced into the market. That spread is actually very, very elevated right now. Um, depending on the tenor you're looking at, it's either near one-year highs or at one-year highs. 
right? So S&P three-month implied volatility, for example, right now being priced about a four-point premium to realize volatility. So that is a fun that I think is a sign that even though the absolute level of the VIX is low, you know, I, I do think there's a, still a healthy amount of risk premium being priced into the derivatives market, you know, and, and that you can you know, that you can see in in the, in the VRP. People who I've been listening, you know, have to suffer through my pontification. I've seen, you know, I've written, I've put that link to the SIBO definition of VIX in, in my pieces. I, I, it's like bookmarked there and I just drop it in how it's the market's best estimate of the, the volatility over the coming 30 days. And I've also said too, way too many times, VIX is not a fear gauge. It just plays one on TV. <laughs> but... I, I do find that that one of the analogs, at least, you know, not sort of day to day, but when you get to turning points is VIX is the price of parachutes when a plane hits turbulence. And when the plane is zooming along at 30,000, because, you know, this this comes from my experience as a market maker. Nobody really wants wants the umbrellas when it's when there's a drought. Nobody wants to but nobody really thinks about a parachute if the plane is is moving along smoothly. As soon as you hit some turbulence or as soon as the rain clouds develop, people want them and they want them in a hurry. And VIX to me is still the most efficient way for an institutional manager to hedge his or her risks, to just, you know, I, I want to de-risk quickly. And I think that explained a lot of what was going on in 2022 was the initial down wave caught a lot of people by surprise. Everybody, everybody was on one side of was on one side of the trade for the most part. And we started going down and people needed to de-risk in a hurry. And as the year went on, VIX declined, you know, because because as people sort of got on side, as they got more comfortable with the level of risk in their portfolio, it still remained relatively elevated because the historicals were relatively elevated. What is interesting to me is that over just the past couple of weeks, and the, the day that it really struck me was um, when the Nikkei when Nikkei reported that the BOJ was making its moves, and and I was scheduled to go on TV at three o'clock that afternoon, I was con I was chatting with the host at one o'clock, saying how you know VIX was was within 0.01 of its years low of its year low that morning, and by the time we went on air, it was over two point about two points higher, if not more. And we've seen a few spikes in VIX, and my thesis right now is. People are, especially as you get into a seasonally difficult time, and remember 30 days from, from early August is early September, I think people are getting a little more mindful of risk. You know, please push, push back upon that if, if, if you see fit, or let's put, let's put that theory to the test a little bit. So I, I will say, you know, one thing that stands out in terms of, you know, what people have been doing this year is that we have seen a lot more hedging activity, particularly in VIX, right? So a resurgence in VIX options trading, just to kind of give you some volume numbers, right? Up 53% year over year uh, in, in terms of VIX option volumes, average ADV of, you know, um, of almost 780,000 contracts. I've got a lot of questions around kind of what is driving that, right? Why this renewed interest in buying VIX upside calls, call spreads, VIX, you know, uh, options trading this year compared to last year, you know, when last year was a more volatile environment, you know, to your point of, of, of kind of when you're talking about the market environment last year, the way I explained last year was, you know, people buy hedges when there is exposure or risk to hedge or when there are gains to protect. 
And last year, what we had was a, you can say what you will, but I would say, you know, Fed rate hikes and higher inflation was on everyone's radar coming into the year, right? So it wasn't really a true surprise. And what we saw throughout the year was, as you mentioned, institutional investors de-risking very steadily and significantly and de-risking by moving to cash, right? So once you've moved to cash, you don't really need to spend premium or spend money to buy option hedges, right? So I think that kind of explained why last year we didn't really see much uh, interest in, in buying uh, put options on the S&P or, or VIX upside calls or call spreads. Uh, whereas this year, particularly in the VIX, I would say people typically use VIX options as tail hedge, right? So to hedge for that black swan event, whether that is, you know, COVID in March of February and March of 2020, whether that's Feb 18, whether that's, you know, the global financial crisis, they want VIX options for that convexity exposure, right? For that potential explosiveness um, when, you know, VIX quadruples, you know, quintuples, et cetera. And that is much easier to do when the VIX is trading in the mid-teens like it is doing today versus, you know, obviously when it was in the mid or to high 20s, which was very much the range last year, right? So I think by the, 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 the very fact that the VIX has declined um, has actually made, you know, tail hedging more attractive uh, using VIX options. So I think that's part of it. And the second part is I mentioned, you know, this year, as you know, markets have rallied, as the macro environment has shifted, investors have had to put more money to work, right? They have to have, they had to increase their allocation to equities, both, you know, discretionary strategies as well as systematic. So as they do that, that need for hedging also, you know, increases. And that's why you've seen this, you know, not just with VIX options, but also with S&P options as well. Someone brought to my attention some of the strategies that people have been using in VIX options. And, you know, you look at the volumes in 47 half calls and and, and 60 calls and, and things of that nature. And some people going as high as 80 calls. I mean, that, you know, that is one hell of a tail risk. And to me, it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting type of hedge because that is purely a disaster hedge. Not even, because you're, you're not, you're not going to see that in, in a garden variety correction. You're exactly. only going to see, you're only going to see that. In, in a crazy scenario. What other strategies, VIX or not, are, are you seeing being very popular, resonating with, with investors these days? Outside of the VIX, you know, product complex, you know, if we move on to S&P, I mentioned, right, like, you know, an uptick in S&P, you know, strategies. I think that is a function of the overall uh, volatility environment declining because, you know, keep in mind that implied volatility is the number one driver of option premiums. So in an environment where implied volatility is lower, that means the absolute premium that you're paying for optionality has also gotten cheaper, right? So it's cheaper to hedge, uh, but also cheaper for upside. And we're seeing, you know, a, a, also an increased uptick in, in, in call volumes as well. And that's, I think, a, a function of the fact that people were not positioned the right way coming into this year, right? The, by far the most consensus position among all the investors I spoke to at the beginning of the year across U.S., Europe, you know, South America, across regions, everyone was short U.S. equities, particularly U.S., you know, large cap tech. And that's precisely what has, you know, led the rally this year. So, you know, if you are someone who has been or was underweight equities, underweight U.S. equities, right? An easy, efficient way to get that upside exposure is through, you know, upside calls. So I think that's why that, I think that helps explain some of the volumes that we've seen uh, on the call side as well. And then last but not least, you know, how can I talk about S&P options without talking about, you know, the zero day options, right? And those <laughs> remain very popular. So, you know, consistently throughout this year, um, we've seen about 40 to 50 percent of all the volumes in the S&P being concentrated in those zero day options. That was going to lead into my next point, because someone I, I had a I had a journalist call me yesterday and said, you know, 
I, I've seen all this new activity in index options. How much of it is zero data? And I'm like, well, probably most of it. Do you agree? Do you agree with? Did I give him the right answer? So, so no, <laughs> technically, it's not most. It's it's, it's yeah. forty to fifty. So it's, okay. it's substantial, but not right. you know, not more than fifty. Um, Plurality, but, not a majority. Okay. Yeah, but I will say I will use this opportunity to plug our uh, upcoming white paper, which hopefully should be published. Um, you know, available to the public by the time this podcast goes live. We have put out a very comprehensive white paper on the zero day, you know, the, the trend of, you know, short, short dated options, particularly focusing on zero day options, right? So looking at, you know, who's using it, why, why people may use these options, um, the volume profile, the, the intraday risk profile, um, it's a very comprehensive, but I would say also very easily digestible white paper. So I, you know, really encourage those who, who want to learn more about the space, um, you know, to, to, to read the paper. I love teeing up stuff like that. That no, and, and I'm and I'm looking forward to it. There, there have been two real pushbacks that people have had about zero dated options. I'm just going to use the term broadly for zero, you know, under let's call it sub five. But you know, one is that zero dated options have rendered VIX have injured VIX somehow. And, and I'll leave my personal opinion out of this one. I'll let you answer it. And the second one is that they bring systemic risk with them which I have a very strong opinion on as well. And I will, let, uh, uh, but I will defer to your answers because again, the listeners have probably heard my, my opinions ad infinitum. So I, I think the, 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 the activity that goes on zero day and zero day options, it's very distinct from the typical volumes that we see in longer dated options, right? So for example, you know, institutional investors coming to a hedge, you know, like we, we mentioned, right? Recession risk, or, you know, they want to put on a hedge going to year end, that hedging flow, right? That's not going to be replaced by zero day options, right? It's true that the VIX does not reflect the activity that's going on in these zero day options, but we do have, you know, a, 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 a like a one day VIX currently, right, which is gives you a better sense of the volatility that it's being you know priced and, and embedded and reflected in, in these short, extremely short dated uh, products. So you know, that's that's kind of my um, my answer to the first point. The second point, the systemic risk. I mean, that's that's a question that we've gotten a lot, and I think you know there's been some very big headlines being made throughout the year, you know, by by people who think this could potentially lead to another you know Volmageddon or another big systemic event. And I would say, for the most part, a lot of the analysis is based on you know incomplete or incorrect assumptions about you know who's trading these products and what they're using them for, right? So you read analysis, for example, you know. That assumes that most people are short these, right? So if they're you know short these options, therefore you know if the market really starts to move, um, there will be a scramble to cover, and that could exacerbate moves in the underlying index. Or you read that you know everyone's long. This is just another form of YOLO. You know retail investors buying buying upside calls. Um, it's just another extension of the meme stock craze, and therefore you know market makers on the other side are all short, and therefore when they start to hedge, that's going to exacerbate moves on the underlying. So. Those are kind of the, the 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 various you know strains of kind of that that argument, and the reality is that actually it's much more nuanced and more importantly it's much more balanced than that. So first, we find that it's you know in terms of the, who's trading it, it's a pretty even uh, split between retail and institutional end users. We find that um, in terms of use cases, it's a pretty diverse set of use cases. Some people use these zero-day options uh, for yield enhancement, so they're selling, you know, capped call spreads, put spreads on the S&P for income generation. 
Other people are using it to hedge overnight risk. Other way, other people are using it to play intraday momentum. It's a pretty diverse set. Um, there are systematic strategies that are being active in, in, in the space. There are a lot of discretionary strategies. So, so it, it's it's very diverse. And then most importantly, the last point is it's very balanced between the buys and the sells, such that if you look at actually at the net positioning across strikes, it's only a tiny fraction of the overall gross volume. So people look at the headline volume in these numbers and they think, oh my goodness, you know, the, the risk must be huge, right? But because it is so evenly balanced between, you know, buys versus sells, the net risk, the net positioning is actually minuscule compared to the gross, you know, volume number. And that's something that, you know, we do go in, in detail in the white paper. So again, you know, for those who want to better understand this product and the space, you know, I do recommend um, everyone to, to, to read the paper. First of all, if you were sitting in the room with me, I'd have given you a big high five along the way because because that really syncs up with what I'm I'm thinking. And I do I really can't wait to read this. That's not that's not blowing smoke. I really do want to see it because you know a couple of things a couple of things that that I'll now add are I I do think I, I've said all along that I think that the the players or the strategies used in among you know among short dated option traders are different than the people using thirty day options or VIX et cetera. So we're in sync on that one. And I and I think that the I've also been, I think, quite vocal in saying that I don't think these have any, you know, they don't add systemic risk at, at the risk of insulting an exchange, which I don't want to do. I My original read was the games haven't changed. They've just added more tables at the casino. It's really just a different set of different set of strategies. And I think the more dire the prediction, my feeling is the the, the less that they've actually been up to their armpits, either at the as a market maker, as a, a as an exchange professional, or as a or as a clearing professional, risk manager, et cetera. I think a lot of them have come, you know, from forty thousand feet, saying these seem really dangerous, but they're they're using very well established, you know, ri risk protocols. I think there is the potential for sort of one day, I'm not going to say hiccups, even, but you know, exacerbate moves on an intraday. And I do think we've seen that, particularly on some of the big upside days. But I think also as the product evolves. I think that those who are inclined for income realize that the the best day to write an option, you know, op, that that decays, you know, fall off exponentially. So the shorter the option, there's very few guarantees in life, but I'll guarantee you there's no extrinsic value in the option after expiration. Um, and I think people people pick up on that idea. Right. Um, so going into the end of the year, where what are you what are you focused on? What do you think the opportunities are for you know for people in the option space um, or investors in general? Yeah, sure. Um, so when I look, you know, across asset classes, and I, I think I mentioned or alluded to this earlier, but what really stands out to me is, you know, interest rate volatility, right? Bond market volatility. That is still the only asset class where volatility is near, extremely elevated levels, near historic levels. It has, you know, has come off the all-time high, near all-time highs that we saw last year, but it, you know, still remains very rich. You know, that again. Is, is really a reflection of Fed policy uncertainty. Specifically within the bond market, what I'm watching is, well, one of the things I'm watching is, you know, the, the SOFR curve, right? And, and the fact that the market has persistently priced about 140 basis points of cuts for next year. That really hasn't changed much at all over the past couple of months outside of the March, you know, banking crisis period. Um, so this persistent belief that the Fed is going to start cutting rates, you know, at the first sign of economic weakness, that, you know, inflation is over or that, you know, the Fed's going to shift focus uh, from fighting inflation to supporting growth. You know, that remains to be seen. Um, and then one asset class I think that's going to be really interesting to watch is going to be credit, 
right? Corporate bonds, um, as we all know, have both duration risk, so interest rate risk sensitivity, as well as credit risk, right? So that's, you know, um, you know reflected in the macro outlook. So that's an asset class. I think that's kind of right at the crossroad of everything that we're talking about. In particular, you know, the, the it's not just that it's sensitive to duration risk and credit risk, but also the correlation between the two. Um, so when we have a year like, you know, last year, 2022, where you had rates going up because of Fed tightening and you had, you know, spreads going up because of the increase in recession risk, right? So when the two kind of move in the same direction, um, you had, you know, last year, a record sell-off in, in investment-grade bonds. IG bonds actually sold off more last year than the S&P, despite being quote-unquote lower risk, right? And that's why last year, if you look at high-yield corporate bonds, right, HYG implied volatility quadrupled, more than quadrupled from a low of four at the beginning in, in January to over 20. Right. So and 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 both of those um, underlines, you know, vols have come in quite a bit this year. So kind of the going forward, the question is, you know, what's going to happen with that correlation between duration and, and credit risk? Could we see a repeat of last year if, if inflation proves to be more sticky? And to that end, you know, I, I'm, one thing I do want to highlight and, and shout out on this call is the fact that we have launched options on uh, both investment, IBOX investment grade, as well as high yield futures, corporate bond futures. So IBHY, which is the high yield, IBOX high yield index, and IBIG, which is the investment grade corporate bond index futures. You know, they, those have been live for a couple of years now. Um, early last month, we launched options on futures, which, you know, again, allows you play the volatility in these underlying assets. And just two things I'll be really quick to highlight on that. One is that by design, these futures and options on futures are designed to tap into the liquidity in, in the underlying ETF ecosystem. So a lot of questions I get is, you know, well, you know, like how liquid are these products? You know, is it going to be as liquid as, you know, the, the, the ETFs? Uh, by design, these futures are designed to track the holdings in the ETF and as a result, allow market makers to hedge with the, un with the underlying ETFs. Um, and that, I think, really enhances liquidity in these products. And the second is, you know, why trade options on these futures when you can trade them on, on the ETFs? And I would say particularly for those who are you know, looking at selling options in, 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 in credit and corporate bonds, you know, two complaints that we've often gotten or drawbacks that we've gotten with those products is that ETF options are uh, American style um, and, and they're physically settled, right? And because they pay a very high dividend, you have pretty substantial early exercise risk. And that's something that, you know, the, 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 on the options on futures, uh, because it's, you know, the few underlying futures are cash settled, because it's on a total return index, you don't have that dividend risk. You know, you do, you know, mitigate uh, a lot of that with options on futures. So that's something that I'll leave you with. I, I do think, you know, corporate bonds um, as an asset class is something, you know, to really watch the next year as we enter uh, potentially, you know, um, uh, you know, a different, you know, rate regime, and and particularly options on corporate bonds. I think that would be very exciting. I think that sounds like a very interesting product, and I do think that the distinction between cash settled and and deliverable, uh, you know, what what your deliverable is 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 underappreciated, and I think I think a lot of uh, you know, institutions know know from that, and but I don't think a lot of individuals appreciate it. I think many of them have learned as they've started to trade SPX. 
short-term options, but there are distinct advantages in that. I think I've written something about it, and I'll drop it in. I'll drop it in this for, for our listeners if if I have it. Perfect, Mandy. This was this was a real eye opener, um, <laughs> and and I hope this is the first of several dialogues that you and I can have on the topic. For everybody who's listening, if you've just tuned in now, shame on you. We've been talking to Mandy Zhu, um, VP and Head of Market Intelligence Data at the CBOE, and. And we've been uh, we've been having a great discussion, and uh, hopefully this is chapter one in uh, in an ongoing discussion. Looking forward to more. Thank you. And you know, just give a shout out for some some of the stuff and where they might be able to find the stuff that's out there. Some some useful SIBO links if they don't already have them, or if there's any that you have at your disposal. Yeah, we'll do. Yep. And on that note, I wish you all farewell. This has been IB, the latest edition of IBKR podcasts. Please tune in next time and and um, look look for this one as well as all your as all our other podcasts at uh, all your favorite uh, podcast destinations, including of course IBKR Campus and IBKRPodcasts.com. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at IBKRPodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit IBKR.com. We offer more trading education materials such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and if necessary, seek professional advice. Options involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. For more information, read the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Features are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at ibkr.com. Any discussion or mention of an ETF is not to be construed as recommendation, promotion, or solicitation. All investors should review and consider associated investment risks, charges, and expenses of the investment company or fund prior to investing. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, as necessary, seek professional advice.